This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. In this episode, we will talk with former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson about whether the 2018 midterm election is secure against Russian hacking. We'll get his thoughts on border security and the future of ICE. And we'll ask Secretary Johnson about the so-called, quote, deep state. Does it exist? And if so, is that a bad thing? Our next guest was the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security from 2013 to 2017. Before that, he was the General Counsel of the Department of Defense. And earlier in his career, he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. He's currently a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We are honored and pleased to welcome to Words Matter, Jay Johnson. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Elise, thanks for having me. So to start, this week marks the anniversary of September 11th. It's been 17 years. Can you talk about where you were on September 11th? Sure. September 11th happens to be my birthday also. I'm sorry. September 11th, 2001 was my 44th birthday. I'm a New Yorker. And on September 11th, 2001, I had come back from the Pentagon. I had served in the Clinton administration as general counsel of the Air Force. And I had left Washington. I was back at the law firm that I'm with now, actually, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. It's sort of my private law practice home. It's a beautiful day. Every time we get a clear blue sky, crystal clear day in the 70s here in New York, I think about 9-11 now. I drove to work and I was sitting at my desk at 8.46 a.m. and I faced east. I heard my next door neighbor say, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And I was sitting next door to the office of Theodore Sorensen, who was one of our senior partners, who was JFK's speechwriter. Wow. And Ted was not in that day. But I walked into Ted's office, and I literally observed the whole thing unfolding before my eyes. I saw the second plane hit, and I was going back and forth between live and watching it on TV. And there was that moment when, in perhaps the only time in my life, my mind could not believe what my eyes were witnessing, which was the collapse of the first tower. And like a lot of New Yorkers, I was stunned. It was beyond my comprehension. And like a lot of New Yorkers, I wanted to do something. And so I went down to the street. I went to the nearest hospital to offer blood. But given the nature of the tragedy, there wasn't a, there wasn't a big need for blood transfusions. And I remember it was one of those days, much like May 1, 2011, the day we got bin Laden, where time seemed to move very slow. So by the time I got back to my car on 8th Avenue and drove home at 3.30, New York had been transformed. It felt like a war zone. And I remember driving across the George Washington Bridge back home to Montclair, New Jersey, and it, it all the traffic was going in one way, and it felt completely different from that serene morning when I drove in. And um, I'll never forget the day. It's seared into my memory, and it was probably the principal motivation for my agreeing to become Secretary of Homeland Security 12 years later. 
You mentioned another very consequential day in American history, May 1st, 2011. And can you talk about where you were that day and what role you were playing in the Obama administration? I was in the command center in the Pentagon in the basement. I don't generally talk about it, but according to published reports, I gave the legal sign-off for our special forces to go into Pakistan to get bin Laden. And that was something that I and a very, very small collection of other lawyers in national security worked on prior to that day. What was that like, determining the sovereignty issues and how to proceed? Well, there are basically, and I don't want to get too in the legal weeds here, but there are basically three grounds for one nation's military to go into the sovereign territory of another. One with what we call host nation consent, where the other country invites you in. Two, when there's a UN Security Council resolution authorizing a use of force. Or three, and this is admittedly the most controversial basis, as an act of self-defense when the host nation is unwilling or unable to deal with the threat itself. And that was the basis that was invoked for our special forces going into Pakistan to get bin Laden. So you watched the raid in real time? Yes. And how did it feel? Remarkable. Um, It was remarkable to watch our special forces at work. I will say that from his prior experience in 1980... Secretary Gates was very concerned about the helicopters. And when we saw that helicopter go down, we had a backup plan, which worked, was executed almost flawlessly. And so that was the moment when everyone's heart stopped. But I still remember hearing uh, over the radio uh, Geronimo, and I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget the moment when he was identified, and I'll never forget the moment when later that evening, Wolf Blitzer was on. I, I'd come home. I fell asleep. I was so exhausted. I woke up, and there's Wolf Blitzer saying there's about to be a presidential announcement, and the president coming out and announcing that we had gotten bin Laden. And so your legal plans as general counsel for if Osama bin Laden had been captured alive weren't all that necessary? Excellent question. (laughs) And there was, uh, I don't want to get too much into the internal deliberations, but there was a school of thought that he should be brought to justice in the Southern District of New York here in Manhattan, or that he should be sent to Guantanamo Bay. And frankly, we never reached a final determination on that. But the capture scenario was a possibility If the individual, the target of the objective, uh, makes a genuine effort to surrender, which in his case, he did not. And so now by this point, we've been 17 years without a major terrorist attack on American soil. And you were you made some news, I think it was in 2012 at Oxford, speaking about how eventually the war on terror would need to transition from a war to more of a law enforcement mission. And where do you think we are in year 17, moving from war to more of a law enforcement mission, or are we there yet? It is impossible to overstate the extent to which I think the terrorist threat to our homeland has evolved. It's very different now. 
we have moved, in my judgment, from the threat of a large-scale attack from external actors who infiltrate our borders. It's still something we have to be vigilant to protect against to now the threat of homegrown violent extremism, the smaller scale attacks like we saw in San Bernardino, in Orlando, uh, even the, the vehicle attacks like the one we saw on the West Side Highway last year. Uh, and that is a more difficult threat to detect and to prevent because they are actors who self-radicalize in secret, very often in, in their own garage or their own basement. Uh, it's harder to detect. I have a lot of confidence in our intelligence community now to detect external plots from overseas that involve multiple actors. I think our government, our intelligence community does a much better job of connecting the dots than it did on 9-11. But we're challenged when it comes to these self-radicalized actors. Now, we haven't seen one of those of late, but that doesn't mean terrorism is over. Terrorism in that form is over. And so I spent a lot of time when I was in office, first of all, supporting local law enforcement and their efforts, mm -hmm. encouraging active shooter training exercises at the local level, and engaging communities around the country, specifically American Muslim communities, to build bridges with those communities to encourage them to help us in our homeland security efforts. And we would do the same in helping them counter violent extremism that might be growing in their own communities in response to the very direct appeals from ISIS and Al-Qaeda online. Well, so that threat is very different from the 9-11 threat. And it's evolved tremendously to include domestic forms of violent extremism, the smaller scale attacks. Well, because how do you really, at the end of the day, protect from a lone wolf attack? In my mind, it's somewhat impossible to ever have 100% security. Correct. When it is so random and so abstract. And, you know, we've seen this year you could categorize as domestic terrorism all of the mass shootings. Correct. Right. And, and the, 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 the threat as it has evolved resembles more and more the type of domestic mass violence that we in this country have lived with a very long time now. And you're right. You cannot prevent this type of violence 100% of the time. I didn't say that when I was Secretary of Homeland Security because, frankly, the American public doesn't want to hear that from the person responsible for the protection of the homeland. They want to know what you are doing, which is what I constantly emphasized while I was in office. But in a free, open society such as ours, we're not a police state. You cannot prevent every single instance of violence. And I think most Americans understand that. So where are we really with the war on terror 17 years in? Do you think we're overly reliant on drone warfare at this point? Or do you think it has the shifting battleground that that has made us safer? A couple things. I think that through targeted lethal force overseas, taking the fight to the enemy overseas in places like Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, we have accomplished a lot in degrading terrorist organizations at the source. Those who are leaders of these organizations, those focused on external attack planning, through targeted lethal force, we've done a lot to protect the homeland 
uh, in those efforts in multiple administrations, in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. I give Secretary Mattis a lot of credit for what he has done to continue the effort that began in our administration, but Jim has done a lot to degrade ISIS in Iraq and Syria and take the fight there such that that organization is not nearly what it was as recently as four years ago. But we still have to do efforts here at home, in the homeland, to prevent, to uh, detect efforts at at violent extremism, recruiting violent extremism in secret here in the homeland. But at the source, we've done a lot to degrade these terrorist organizations now. And I think that's a good thing. Well, I feel like the public debate has shifted very much in terms of the focus being on al-Qaeda, the focus being on ISIS. While there still certainly is definitely an element of fear and plenty to be concerned about, to border security specifically. And politically, clearly, the wall was the big question of the 2016 election. And you were involved with the Obama administration's border policy. And can you talk about this administration's strategy and specifically the child separation policy and what that policy was during the Obama administration? Well, let's start with this. First, the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2002 when we were dealing with the earlier type of terrorist threat that I talked about from external sources. So the thinking at the time was that if you consolidate into one cabinet-level department all the different types of border security we have, uh, threats from the land, threats from the air, threats from the sea, maritime security, border security, aviation security, security at the ports, you will go a long way to preventing terrorism from infiltrating our borders. We've done a lot to take the fight to terrorist organizations overseas, uh, and we've done a lot for border security over the last several administrations, such that Illegal migration has gone down significantly. It's a fraction of what it used to be. And there is a much higher percentage of those who cross our borders illegally who are actually arrested Mm -hmm. and interdicted. Now, illegal migration has gone down, but the character and the demographic of those crossing our border today has completely shifted. It's no longer the single adult from Mexico. It is now women and children from Guatemala – Honduras, El Salvador. I saw that myself when I was in office. I think I made 12 separate trips to the southern border, specifically South Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, to see this myself. And 2014 was really when it started. 2014 was a spike in migrants, families coming from Central America. And so these people do not represent a national security threat. I'm not going to say that there is never what we refer to as a special interest alien who is apprehended at the border. There are, and we made a lot of efforts in the previous administration to detect what I refer to as special interest aliens, those who might represent mm-hmm. terrorist threats. But what we're wrestling with for the large, for the most part are women and children coming from Central America. And we did a number of things in the previous administration to try to address this problem. The one thing we would not do, and we thought about doing, but we just could not, I could not, was separate children from their parents, separating children from their mothers. I still have 
the visual image in my mind of young mothers literally clinging to their babies at border patrol holding stations. And I could not ask an immigration enforcement officer or a border patrol officer to pull a child away from its mother. I just couldn't do that. We did a number of other things. So, some you, of which so were the Obama administration never separated children from their parents. It was as not a, matter a of policy. It was not a policy or a practice to do so. Because that's been a significant talking point on the right that, oh, the Obama administration did this first. So I think it's, it's not true. Can I say that there was an occasional instance where for reasons of health or safety or because there was some doubt about who the parent is, that a child would be separated from an adult? Yes, sometimes. But it was not a policy or a practice to separate children from their parents. That was something we refused to do. If we had, I certainly would have heard about it. There would have been an uproar at the time if we had done so. And we just did not go there. Do you think that ICE has become more extreme under this administration? So in the previous administration, we asked ICE, I asked ICE to focus on the criminals. Use the resources you have in the interior to focus on those who are public safety threats, the convicted criminals. Work with the so-called sanctuary cities to have them transfer to us, the undocumented who are coming out of the jails for reasons of public safety. Mm-hmm. You know, the gangs, MS-13, the really dangerous people who should not be walking around the streets who are undocumented. And ICE actually did that. We redirected their resources to focus more on the criminals. So a fewer, fewer people from the interior were deported, but a higher percentage of those who were deported were convicted criminals, which is good for public safety. And we were making real strides toward working with a lot of jurisdictions that didn't want to work with ICE in getting them to give us the worst of the worst. Now, little known fact, my last year in office, morale in ICE went up dramatically, went up dramatically, a seven whole percentage points according to the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. It's an annual survey and they rank agencies. Percentage-wise, the morale in ICE went up seven whole percentage points, which was the single biggest increase across all of DHS. My last year, we had a three-point increase, but seven points in ICE. And I think part of it was, first of all, I heard their issues about being put on the same pay scale with other federal law enforcement officers. And I said, great, we want you to act like federal law enforcement officers. Go after the criminals. And they did that. And I think that had something to do with it. Now, ICE has a very different policy direction right now. And I think that it's costing us in terms of our ability to go after the really bad people who are undocumented because now the so-called sanctuary cities are refusing to work with ICE and they are proud of it. And now ICE is vilified in the very communities where they need to work to root out the dangerous undocumented people in those communities. And I used to say to the leadership of ICE, you know, one or two very, very controversial cases, when they get into an echo chamber, have the ability to derail your entire mission in a particular community where nobody wants to work with you. And we now see calls to abolish ICE altogether, which I opposed well, and I publicly opposed that. That's something I wanted to hear about that's because where it's we become are. a very big talking point on the left. Uh, you see among so- some of the more left-leaning Democratic candidates just to call for the complete abolition of ICE. 
I don't believe that's a serious policy proposal. During the Vietnam War, a lot of people against the Vietnam War, very emotional about it, very upset about it, but almost no one called for the entire elimination of the Department of Defense for that reason. ICE is essentially a law enforcement agency. It's enforcement and removal operations, but it's also Homeland Security Investigations, which is a law enforcement agency that deals in smuggling cases, child pornography, counterfeit goods, issues around customs and the border. They do really important work. So the answer is not elimination of the agency outright. If you don't like what the agency is doing, change the direction and the policy of the organization. And if you don't like if that doesn't happen, change the leaders who promulgate those those policies. But elimination of the agency entirely is not the right answer in my view. So let's go back to another consequential day in American history that you were around for, especially consequential in political history, October 4th, 2016. October 7th, 2016, I think you mean. Oh, October 7th. Friday, October 7th, 2016. 2016. If you're going to ask me what I think you're well, going to ask me Well, words about. matter. That's our whole thing. Words matter. So thank yes. you for correcting me. A lot of things happened on Friday, October 7th. You were Homeland Security yes. as secretary, and you, along with the director of national intelligence, <clears throat> released a statement at around 3.30 p.m. Correct. Talking about uh, the Russian Russian interference in the election. And then about 30 minutes later, the Access Hollywood story broke. And then well, there's a whole series of events. an hour later, WikiLeaks released well, John Badesta's There's a whole emails. series of events before the release of that statement. So let's just day. have you talk us okay. through that. So Hurricane Matthew was working its way up the Florida coast that day. and Forgot about that one. I, within the space of about maybe two and a half hours, briefed President Obama, Secretary Clinton, and Mr. Trump on the relief effort for Hurricane Matthew. I spoke to all three of them that day before the release of our statement. Met with President Obama, with the FEMA administrator in the Oval. Then Secretary Clinton's campaign wanted a briefing, so I said, sure, but I got to offer the same thing to the Trump campaign. I did. I called Governor Christie. He said, sure, I'll set it up. So in the space of 45 minutes, I spoke to Secretary Clinton, and I spoke to Mr. Trump about what we were doing, and then I got off the phone with Mr. Trump, and I said to myself, they have no idea about the statement we're about to issue, and I could not tell them about it because it had not officially been declassified yet. And then it was a short time later that the statement was released. And then, as you mentioned, uh, there was the release of the Access Hollywood video and then the Podesta email. So it was a big and very consequential day in our history. Talk about just how you first learned that the election system was at risk in 2016. There was an emerging picture in the summer of 2016 that... First, someone had hacked the DNC's emails. Second, that it was the Russian government doing it at the behest of Vladimir Putin. So this was himself. May 2016. It, by, the, by late summer, we had a very clear and certain picture that the Russian government at the behest of Vladimir Putin was behind what was going on with the DNC. We had at that point also... Very clear indications, which is what I warn state election officials about, of efforts at what we refer to as scanning and probing around voter registration databases in various different states. 
though by October 7th, we were not yet in a position to attribute that specifically to the Russian government. Well, we made us, we, we referred to it in our statement, and it was only later that we knew that was the Russian government. What was the debate about the content of the statement? Interesting question. We were wrestling with, and this was very clearly uh, a difficult decision, and it was a, it was a, an issue of first impression. So we were wrestling with how do you make public something and risk compromising sources and methods anytime you declassify something this sensitive. There was a school of thought that simply around the discussion in the Situation Room that simply by making the statement and saying that a foreign power was was interfering with our process, we might be undermining our democracy ourselves by doing who, that. Who was in that camp? Well, I don't want to get yeah. into I don't want to get into who said what specifically, but there was that school of thought. So you will notice that in our talking points leading up to October seventh, before we could say it was the Russians, we were in every statement I made, I said, of course we have a lot of confidence in our democracy because we didn't want to discourage people from participating. You'll recall that Donald Trump was saying the election is going to be rigged. It's going to be rigged. And so we didn't want to play into the notion that that's going to happen. But we thought it was important, critical, that we tell the American people during the election, before the voting, that we saw the Russian government was attempting to interfere in the process. And that's what we did on October 7th. And it was not an easy decision. It's not something you wake up one morning and tweet about, at least in the prior administration. That's not how we did things. And there was, and I think there should be, a real great aversion to having the national security apparatus of our government becoming involved or saying anything about an ongoing political campaign. The former FBI director, Jim Comey, he wrote in his book that he was influenced by Hillary Clinton being so far ahead in the polls and so wanted to err on the side of caution. Well, not just the polls, but as a general matter, the intelligence community, homeland security should have nothing to do with elections. We should not be commenting on what's happening in an ongoing election just as a general institutional matter, these should be a political organization. So there was, there was, and rightly so, a great aversion to doing something that looked as if we were somehow taking sides. And I'm quite sure the polls at the time were an influence on people's thinking. Now, you recall, Elise, that when we released our statement, it was below the fold news that day. I thought it was going to be exactly. a big deal. I Bomb thought it was going to be... Full banner, cross the top, U.S. government accuses Russian government of interfering with ongoing election. Um, but because of the Access Hollywood video, it was below the fold. There was remarkably little follow-up from the press after we issued our statement. Because as you'll recall, for the next several days, all through the weekend, it was Access Hollywood. Can he survive? Is he going to drop out? There was the debate on Sunday. And... You know, the press was very focused. The, you know, the, the cattle were off on the other end of the pasture. And it wasn't until December, really, that the establishment press came back to, hey, the Russians interfered with our election. And 
my response was, yes, we told you that two months ago. Do you think that the Obama administration's risk aversion towards not influencing the election one way or the other actually did influence the election by not coming out in a more robust way and talking about the Russian interference? Well, we were wrestling with an issue of uh, a real problem of, of first impression. And I recall vividly the considerations at the time. And the considerations at the time were you have one candidate saying the election is going to be rigged. You also have a real concern about compromising sources and methods. We have a real concern about making it appear as though we're taking sides and therefore playing into Mr. Trump's hands that the Obama administration is taking sides with Secretary Clinton by saying the Russians are meddling in our election and therefore you should you know, not abide by that. And so I believe that we did what we did with the right level of volume in the right manner given the considerations we were wrestling with at the time. Now, it's very easy to say in hindsight, given all that's happened, given the election result, or you know, why didn't you do more? Very easy to say that. And anytime you make a difficult, I've learned this from my years in national security, anytime you make a difficult decision in national security, somebody's going to always say, why didn't you do it sooner? Why didn't you do it louder? Or why did you do it at all? And at the time, Given the considerations we were wrestling with, the cross-current of considerations we were wrestling with, I believe that we made the right decision in the right manner. So now that we know more about the full extent of the Russian interference, now that more has been out there, and specifically the Mueller By the way, there's no shortage of things to talk about. Oh, there? right. From, from immigration to Central America. I know. I'm trying America to think of to, what all – I mean how many horrors of the world we can talk about. Uh, there but, are like six or seven more. Um, but but one thing that, that I found particularly horrifying about the, uh, the indictment of the Internet Research Agency in Russia was the specific voter suppression efforts and – the election came down to about 80,000 votes in three states, <clears throat> right. and specifically the methods they used were so targeted towards suppressing the African-American vote, for example, mm -hmm. in Michigan and in Wisconsin. And I know the intelligence community has said that they have not done an assessment over if the interference changed the course of the election. No, but, they're not social scientists and they're <laughs> not pollsters, right. But so you – what's your opinion on that? I'm not a social scientist or a pollster either. My opinion on that is I believe that well, – I believe two things. One, Mueller's indictments are remarkably detailed. They did a remarkable amount of work to get behind what actually happened, an extraordinary level of detail, right down to the computer that was used to do what they did. So it's a really impressive piece of work that didn't leak before either of those indictments came out. Two, I believe that we have yet to fully understand the extent to which the fake news, extremist views promulgated, published, republished by the Russian government had an influence on voters' thinking, voter suppression. I believe we still have not understood fully the extent of that in 2016, two years ago. 
let alone what's going on right now. Well, and that's kind of where I wanted to move, looking to 2018. And recently, Senator Bill Nelson of Florida said that Florida's election system has been infiltrated. 11-year-old boy was able to hack into Florida's voting system and change votes with well, the, 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 the challenge to our election infrastructure cybersecurity is by no means limited to the Russian government. You know, people have been awakened to the things that one might be able to do with a voter registration database. And so this problem, is this, this threat, this vulnerability is by no means limited to a foreign power. Well, and so the former federal election commissioner, he said our house is on fire and we're sitting around. It's pretty clear that we saw what we saw from the Russians is going to occur again in 2018. Do you agree with that, that our house is on fire? My assessment is this. My assessment is that state election officials have done a fair amount to improve the cybersecurity around election infrastructure. I think they got started a little late, but they've done a fair amount. Some states way more than others. There's a very good analysis of this by the Center for American Progress, state by state, that gives them a grade. And that what we need to be concerned about equally, if not more so, is what a foreign power is able to do to push out fake news and extremist views that affect voters' thinking in specific targeted elections and races, congressional districts and states. And that is a much harder problem to get your arms around in my view because it means potentially getting into regulating political debate, speech, content in a free society. Were you comforted at all by the tech companies who testified on the Hill recently? Yes, as long as I think I think our government, our regulators have to be careful about crossing the threshold into regulating speech. We don't do that in this country. Uh, there are probably some in power right now who would like to do that, but we don't do that in this country. They do that in other governments where they regulate speech they don't like. And I think we have to be exceedingly careful. And I think for the most part, this is a matter of self-regulation by social media and internet service providers. And it has to be. The government should not be regulating speech. Well, so if the states are doing work and they've started to do work to secure the election systems, what about the feds? What's happening at the Fed? Has the Trump administration done enough to secure the integrity of our elections. I think the principal contribution that the federal government should make are grants to support state and local efforts to shore up their election infrastructure, cybersecurity. Just before I left office, I declared election infrastructure to be critical infrastructure in this country, like the defense industry, like the power grid, because our democracy depends on it. And there was a lot of frankly, misunderstanding and pushback from the states that thought we were trying to take over what they normally do. And that was not it at all. It's just prioritizing, providing state and local election officials with assistance to do so. I think that's the principal contribution that the federal government can make here. And I was disappointed that Congress seems to be trimming back 
the level of, of grant funding for this purpose. Why do you think that is when it's clearly a threat? You'd have to ask our <laughs> appropriators in Congress that question. I think that this is an ongoing threat. As I said, we were dealing with a new phenomenon, a relatively new phenomenon in 2016. Now, two years later, mm -hmm. we know what they're doing. Our intelligence community has said in crystal clear terms, they're still doing this. They're still at this. The threats still exist. So there should be no excuse for not taking this seriously at this point. Well, and specifically, the NSA head, Admiral Rogers, said that they're forced to use their cyber capabilities and that's all they have in terms of being given the authority to tackle the problem. Democracy is in the crosshairs. That's what my successor said. You can't get much more alarmist than that. <sighs> so what is our government doing about this? What is our government at a national level? What is our Congress doing about this? I can't understand why we would withhold money for this purpose. And not to be, uh, since we've covered the realm of darkness, we've covered border security, <laughs> we've covered terrorism, we covered the integrity of our electoral system. What worries you the most about the current administration's national security strategy? I'm worried that our government could be unable, incapable of addressing another true crisis right now because our government itself is in crisis right now. I worry that we would be incapable of responding to adequately another 9-11 type situation, another crisis on the scale of a 9-11 because our government is so paralyzed, so polarized, so focused on other things right now that we could not, on behalf of the public that we are supposed to serve in office, respond to a serious national security or public safety threat. So that's, that's something I, I definitely worry about. On the other hand, it still is the case, I believe, that below the radar of people like you and me, there is some bipartisan work that does go on at, in congressional committees, um, at the SES level of, of government, for example. Um, you know, I, I give this administration a decent amount of credit for the sanctions they've imposed on various Russian entities and individuals. They're taking it at a certain level of our government very, very seriously and going, going pretty far to sanction these Russian entities and people where it hurts. And I think that's a, a good thing. So there is a, there is a fair amount of work, good work that is going on for public safety, for, for homeland security right now. I'm worried that we may be taking our eye off the ball when it comes to countering violent extremism here at home. I'm worried that we don't, as far as I can tell, have a real cybersecurity czar spearheading a national effort at our cybersecurity right now at either the White House or or any other place in our government. We need a, a national spokesperson for cybersecurity. Cybersecurity has become, and I said this when I was in office, the other cornerstone, in addition to counterterrorism, of Homeland Security's mission. And I don't see an adequate level of focus on cybersecurity by itself right now. Uh, there are a range of things. Um, and I hope that at some point our government can come together on a bipartisan basis 
to address some of the real problems we face. And you mentioned, interestingly enough, bureaucrats who are keeping the government going, people working at a in a bipartisan way in Congress at lower levels. Uh, there was an interesting op-ed this week that yes. everyone has been talking about. Yep. And what's your opinion of the anonymous op-ed? And do you think it was harmful or helpful? Very interesting. So my first reaction to the op-ed when I read it, and it was one of those things I had to read and then reread and reread. My first reaction was, hey, this is great. There are people who, as I think the op-ed said, are the adults who are trying to contain the chaos within this administration. And I don't know the motives of the individual who wrote it. The problem, however, is that, you know, I'll use an analogy. If we have, let's say, a spy that has been successfully uh, embedded in a foreign enemy's government who can report back all the things our enemy is doing, do we then have that spy write an op-ed saying, hey, I have successfully embedded in our enemy's inner circle and you, the American public, should be really happy about that? No, because you make the central actor even more paranoid and determined to root out who the spy is. Well, and that's so, my question. So well, what I'm saying is if the individual who wrote the op-ed really believed in what he was doing, perhaps he could have should have just kept his mouth, he or she could have mm -hmm. just kept their mouth shut and continued doing what they were doing. Well, do you think it gives any, it helps Donald Trump's claim of a deep state? No, because if you believe that uh, it is a quote-unquote senior administration official. That means the person was a political appointee of Donald Trump, not a remnant of a prior administration, which is how the deep state is described. And you're a former cabinet secretary. Do you think that a cabinet secretary or someone who Americans know and are familiar with authored this? Or what's your prediction? Do you think you're it's asking me to engage somewhat in edu educated, in educated speculation? speculation. My educated speculation, and I can't believe I'm going down this road, is that it is someone at the sub-cabinet level who is not a household That's name. That's my prediction, too. I don't think it is someone who, on a daily basis or a regular basis, comes face-to-face -face with the president. I think it's somebody who's at the sub-cabinet level. I also believe that within a short period of time, we will know who this person is. Well, uh, why do you think we'll know pretty quickly? because there seems to be very much of a witch hunt going on right now for such a person. Lots of witch hunts and, these days in um, Washington. I don't know how the writer of the op-ed can come to work every day and survive in this climate. Another question that the op-ed made me want to, want to ask you is, did anyone in the Obama cabinet ever talk about the 25th Amendment? No, not to my knowledge. Um, you mean it wasn't something you talked about often that you thought that President Obama had, you know, was a little bit off? By the way, do you know who the first cabinet officer to resign from Donald Trump's administration was? You. Correct. Because you were the, weren't you the survivor at I was State the of the Union? survivor, correct. So I survived. I, I you survived, resigned. though. I, 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 I survived for seven and a half hours and resigned at 730, seven and a half hours into his administration, correct. Um, just an interesting little footnote of trivia there. No, Barack Obama is, I mean, I, I cannot 
begin to explain the differences between Donald Trump and Barack Obama. There are probably no two human beings more different on earth. Barack Obama is a remarkably disciplined person and he's probably one of the least impulsive people I know and uh, one of the most deliberative, careful, thoughtful people I know. And so, no, I mean, he never even never even had to go to the hospital like Reagan did for an operation uh, where the 25th Amendment was invoked for a couple of hours. So, no, not to my knowledge. The other, but the, the remarkable thing, one of the remarkable things about the current environment is that there seem to be so many people in the current administration who are apparently political appointees of this administration willing to throw the president on the bus, just throw him under the bus and make him look bad. And I don't know quite why that is. I mean, it's not something we would do in the prior administration. You don't, you don't, you know, throw under the bus the person that brought you to the party. And so it's just very difficult to, for someone like me who served in a prior administration in a very, very different environment to completely get our head around a lot of what's going on right now. Have you spoken to President Obama recently? How is he feeling about the state of the well, union? Well, I think how he's feeling is reflected in the speech he gave. Uh, and I'm quite sure that he is – well, the answer to your first question is no, not recently. He's off writing his book. But – I'm quite sure he is upset about current state of affairs, like a lot of us are, and that was reflected. Because well, I was surprised that he called out Donald Trump by name. I was not. I think uh, I think the current situation required it. Well, it shows the seriousness of the current situation that President Obama would call out the current president by name. That's right. what I guess surprised me, although I'm not surprised. And apparently he's going to have an interesting run this fall on the campaign trail. Well, I hope so. Um, Even after eight years as president, 20 months after his presidency, he still generates a lot of enthusiasm, even among and particularly among young people, which is pretty remarkable for a former president to be able to go to a university or college campus and generate so much enthusiasm for participation in our democracy. And I think he's exactly right in sending the message that if you don't like the current state of affairs, don't count on impeachment, don't count on the 25th Amendment, you vote. you got to participate in democracy. Change begins with the people. That's the way our framers contemplated it. Things like vehicles like impeachment or invocation of the 25th Amendment were intended for emergency, exigent crisis circumstances. And so it's up to the voters to go to the polls at record levels, if you don't like what's happening, to require change in midterms or in presidential election cycles. We saw that in 2008 when voters came out in record numbers, 69 million people voted for Barack Obama in 2008. That is more than any candidate in the history of our nation ever received in one election because people were inspired to come out and vote for change. And that did not happen in 2016. The way our constitutional system works, winners can be losers and losers can be winners. You can win the popular vote and still lose the election because of the Electoral College. And if 
a few more voters had come out in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, and um, Ohio, the result would have been different. She won by 3 million votes, but she lost the election. And so it's up to the voters, and particularly young voters, if they want change, to come out and take the 30 minutes to vote. And that is an uplifting note to end on. As my former partner at my law firm, Ted Sorensen, was JFK's speechwriter, used to say, democracies can be self-correcting every two or four years. Let's hope. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Well, great interview, Elise. And I'll just say, I think the point about election security is a fundamental one. We don't live in a democracy if we don't have free and fair elections. And I think most Americans want to continue to live in a democracy. And what I'm so struck about Secretary Johnson saying, and he's going to be right or wrong on the work of local election officials, but the total apathy of this administration with regard to the security of our elections, they have done nothing. Zero, zilch, nada. And we know that our election systems are vulnerable. It's just startling that for two centuries, the blood of American patriots has been spilled so that we might have free elections. And the bureaucrats in the Trump administration will take no administrative action, no legislative action, no action of any type to guarantee that we have the most secure election system anywhere in the world. It's just extraordinary. And we'll be right back. Steve, you've run your share of political campaigns, and it's hard to find top talent. How do you recruit when you want to set up a top-notch operation? Well, you're right. Whether it's at the local, state, federal, national level, one of the toughest parts of setting up a campaign is finding the right people and getting them into the right jobs. And when I ran my first campaign, and you have to remember, this was before Al Gore invented the Internet, applications came in by mail, and it could take weeks before you even met with candidates uh, for key positions. And while things move faster today, process is still difficult. You either get too few resumes or too many, and even then, often not for the right people you're looking for. But ZipRecruiter makes it easy. ZipRecruiter.com slash words. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash words. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash words. W-O-R-D-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash words. The smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter. And one final word. The New York Times op-ed this week from a senior administration official talking about the president of the United States' complete unsuitability for his office, his distemper, his incompetence, his meanness, his cruelty, and mostly his psychological unfitness was disturbing for the whole country. And there's a debate that's broken out about what is it that these people are doing in the White House and does that person have an obligation to go public? My first reaction to it was to think of John McCain in the prison cell. And the 
delight and joy those prisoners had when they heard a tap on the other side of the wall from their solitary confinement and isolation. And my first instinct upon reading that op-ed was to think that it's very nice to make contact with you. But I have a message back, and it's that the people inside, they need to send out the strongest, toughest, bravest one among them to stand in front of the bright lights and to tell the American people, and particularly the Trump supporters, what it is that they are supporting. There are different categories of people working in that White House, and I think it's important to go through them. There are necessary people that are vital, I believe, in this moment in time for the protection of our national security and all of us. Jim Mattis falls squarely into that camp. I don't want to see Jim Mattis leave as Secretary of Defense. I also believe it's completely appropriate to lie sometimes in the interests of national security. And in order to protect the country and to protect the United States military, if Jim Mattis had to go out and say that he disagreed with the Bob Woodward book, completely fine with it. There are people in that White House, and this is the category that most everyone falls into, they're Donald Trump's accomplices. And I hope they never work in a position of responsibility in American government ever, ever again after this is over. No doubt many of the accomplices will one day try to proclaim themselves as parts of this secret resistance. Uh, We shouldn't let them do that. There are people in there who are careerists, who don't like Donald Trump, but they sure like the title. They like flying on Air Force One. They like the motorcade. They like being addressed as Mr. or Madam Secretary. And, And those careerists should not be explicated from the vileness of this administration uh, simply because they don't like Donald Trump. They get up every day and they serve him. Across the government, there are career officials and the professional staff of the National Security Council who are not political appointees. We should not disparage those people. They are not Trump's accomplices. And lastly, there's a category of people like Gary Cohn, who portray themselves as heroes for stealing a piece of paper off the president's desk. He would have been a hero if he resigned after Charlottesville and said, no, in fact, Mr. President, there are no good Nazis, but that's not the path he chose to do. When this sad and sorry chapter in America ends, all of these people, generally speaking, they won't remember the experience of working for Donald Trump. And when we say Trump, they'll say Trump who? But we should remember that Donald Trump isn't doing it alone. He has accomplices, whether it is through silent complicity of a Paul Ryan and a Mitch McConnell, whether it's an acquiescence to the worst of Trumpism for the purposes of passing a tax cut, whether it's the ambition to ride on Air Force One, or whether it's the deep belief of someone like a Stephen Miller. This vile era of American history will come to an end one day, and when it does, all of these people will have an accounting to do. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.